0: Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my partner in work avoidance, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the highly irrelevant. In today's episode, we discuss many aspects of mixture models, from their tremendous potential to their seductive danger. And along the way, we also mention drama nerds, hunchbacks, date night for the Lincolns, name dropping, Yukon women's basketball, Inductive, Deductive, Wishin' and a hoping, Chihuahua Heads, Cat's Cradle, and Albino Gorillas. We hope you enjoy today's episode.
1: I called your house the other day. I had the <laughs> opportunity to talk to your eldest son. Quit. <laughs> Who has come up uh, on a prior Uh, episode, notably in you catching him (laughs) forging a document in kindergarten, which at the time you and I both sheepishly were very impressed with. Yes. But he also raised the issue, did I have any insights into similar infractions that you may have had as a child yourself? And I have to admit Uh, that I came up somewhat empty but mm-hmm. I would pose it to you. So tell me, in response, that we can give your son some humanizing element of little Greg. <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> honestly, I was a pretty good kid. Mostly Quinn is a pretty good kid. Mostly. There was one episode that didn't end well for me, let's just say. And I hesitate to share this with you because it gets back to Quinn then he now has something to leverage. But I'll take
1: that risk. It's on you. You have my commitment (laughs) that I won't share this with your son, Quinn. Okay. When does he get home from school today?
0: (laughs) I know you're texting him right now. Uh, Okay, so here's, here's the story. I was a hyper-involved kid in high school, academically, athletically, all kinds of things. And I also, <laughs> shocker of shockers, I don't know if I should admit this, um, I was a drama kid. And the drama kids were actually pretty fun. Complete nerds, but fun. I came home after a production and it was probably around 10.30 at night and dad wasn't home. And I wanted to say, I want to go back out. You know, there's a cast party. and But dad wasn't there. So the thing that a, a reasonable kid would do is write a note that says, Dad, I'm going to go out. I'll be home by such and such a time. It just seemed quicker to pile pillows under the blankets of my bed so that in case Dad checked on me, he would think I'm just fine. It really was all about Dad. Well, when I came home around 2 in the morning, I had a key that opened up the side door into our kitchen, and I opened the door, and Dad's sitting right there in the chair watching (laughs) me come in.
1: Was he in the dark with a glass of whiskey? Because this is like coming right out of a movie. So,
0: it's very, very <laughs> funny that you described that. It, it was it was actually worse. So, my, when I was a kid, my dad smoked. And so, as I was unlocking the door with the glass panel... I saw a little orange glow as I'm opening opening the door, and I felt everything in me drop all the way down. This was not going to go well. The quick version, I didn't have any social activity for, I think it was two or three months after Uh. that. But what came up in the conversation, which I thought was especially funny, you know, and I'd said, I just thought you would worry less if you thought I was safe in bed, you know, all the stupid things that a kid would say. And my dad walks me over into the bedroom, which was on the first floor of the house. And he, he points to my bed and he goes, what kind of human being has that shape? Look, look at this. <laughs> I had to give him that because it, it looked like I'd been in a horrific accident and tucked myself into
1: bed. <laughs> so his main disappointment with you is you did it so poorly. So poorly. That's right. That's yeah. right. So you have my word. Mm-hmm. that i will not tell quinn any of this <laughs>
0: okay <laughs> quinn i
1: gotta call you back take care of buddy <laughs> Yep, i promise
0: uh-huh you know it actually reminds me of something that has to do with today's episode the boys and i used to do when they were much littler we used to do this blanket thing where they would hide under a blanket just downstairs in the in the family room and i had to try to guess if there was one kid under the blanket or two kids under the blanket. And they could actively try to shape themselves into one, you know, the form of one person Mm -hmm. as best they could, sort of one lump. Um, And if they did a poor job, it would be maybe a couple. And you know what this reminds me of?
1: Really bad pillow things (laughs) with your dad where it looks like you were in a car crash? (laughs) And (laughs) and And?
0: it reminds me of mixture models, right? Uh. Uh Uh-huh. All right, so when I talk about mixtures in my classes, I do use the example of my kids underneath the blanket. And one of the things that I say to lead it all off, it's sort of like I have to determine whether or not there is one kid or two kids under the blanket, whether or not there's a mixture of children under the blanket or not. My ability to do that comes from the fact that I have a pre-existing belief about What the shape of a human should be underneath the blanket, what the shape of a kid should be, or what my dad's conception of what the shape of a teenager ought to be. In fact, I would look at the blanket sometimes that my sons, Quinn and Tate, um, when they would be under it, and I would be sort of scratching my head. All right, are there two kids or is there one hunchback? (laughs) <laughs> and that was right and that's actually that's very symbolic of something that we face when we get to mixture models in general that the only way that we can start to try to discern whether there's one population, two populations, three populations, etc is to impose some sort of prior knowledge or pre-existing belief about what the shapes of things ought to be underneath the blanket. That's right, Greg. I'm so <laughs> glad you
1: brought that up. <laughs> 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 <I'm> t- <laughs> you're right <laughs> okay i was i was kind of anticipating that you would tell me what mixture modeling actually is before we drill down into it
0: as you would say i've wandered all over hell's half acre so yes. far is that correct
1: okay although this is a family show so it's hex half acre. hex half acre there we yes. go I could
0: give this big, long explanation of mixture models that's fairly formal, but in, in a rare move, I'm going to read you one sentence. Obviously, it can't be a sentence that we created because...
1: <laughs> For obvious reasons. That's right.
0: Why say in one sentence what you can say in four pages? That's our, that's, <laughs> that's our motto. So I'm going to read you something by McLaughlin and Peel. Brace yourself. I am right. braced. Here we go. A mixture analysis is an analysis that estimates parameters for a given number of hypothesized groups, known as classes, in a single data set without the availability of a classification variable or other such a priori information about group membership with which to sort the data.
1: Oh, I love that. Yeah? That is tight and focused and unambiguous, so I'm going to go ahead and pee all over it. How about that? (laughs) Okay. Go ahead. Four pages, go. So let me teleport to somebody who has a data set and is doing something. So you've got a factor analysis, a path model, a full SEM. Maybe you have a growth model. You can have anything at all. We talked about in a prior episode about invariance, right? And we talked about multiple group. Maybe there was a factor analysis model for depression that behaved differently for boys and girls. So there were different factor loadings or there were different factor variances or means or whatever. Mm -hmm. The easy part of that was, you know who the boys were and you knew who the girls were. Girls were. So you went and got a cup of coffee, you sharpened your pencil, you sat back down, you're doing, say, a growth model. You're mm-hmm. looking at a developmental trajectory and something. And you suspect that there might be groups within your sample. Mm-hmm. But you don't know who belongs to what. You don't have the grouping. So you don't know who belongs to which group. Here's another poke in the eye. You don't even know how many groups there are. Yeah. Maybe there are two, maybe there are three, maybe there are just one, maybe there are five. You don't know. And so mixture modeling is a general set of techniques that allows you to approach your data and to varying degrees of validity, reliability, and inherent danger, you let your data speak to you about how many classes or groups does your data suggest exists. So you can fit a growth model with no predictors. You can have predictors of the growth factors themselves, gender and race and treatment condition. Mm -hmm. You could potentially have those same predictors or even different predictors of class membership. So it's sometimes hard to get your head around is you can have a predictor of slope within class, but you can have a predictor of which class you're more likely to belong if you have an alcoholic parent than if you don't have an alcoholic parent. All right. So I know it's like a time warp, man, to slip into this. Uh So it turns out that identifying the number of classes is a vexing problem. Mm -hmm. Often people will do what are called information criterion-based, so AIC or the BIC, Bayesian Mm -hmm. Information Criterion. It's sometimes called the BIC, the AIC or the BIC. Mm -hmm. Once you extract these classes, you can either look at the parameter estimates that are derived from those to try to get some insight, or... You can, and again, it's kind of like playing with a really sharp, rusty knife is you know you shouldn't, but you can't help yourself. There are ways that you can assign individuals to which class they most likely belong to. Mm -hmm. and then use that as a variable in other analyses. And we can talk later in this episode about the dangers of that. But this is a very, very popular approach.
0: I mean, people love mixture models. They do mixture models a lot, a lot. They, ooh, sir, mixture a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So yet
1: another parallel Uh of you and I growing up in similar times. (laughs) I was attending parties that had sir mixture a lot and of course his signature tune uh-huh. is baby got Bick. a lot them nasty thoughts baby got
0: that was uncharacteristically good for you i i have to tell you now a whole song is going through my head i, um, I in in fact in fact I'm pretty sure as soon as we're done recording this episode, I'm gonna go off and write lyrics to baby got bic. I think that's Okay, happen. we
1: we will find a way to distribute <laughs> that in some socially appropriate mechanism. Okay. <laughs> I stop? I'm muting you now. <laughs> so let's talk about these as a way of knowing and as a way of moving forward as a science. A lot of what I do centers around developmental trajectories over time. And mixture models arise very commonly in those kinds of settings. And so maybe just as an orienting point of how I think about it, related to something that we talked about on a prior episode of the invariance or non-invariance or the incorrect failure to reject non-invariance, and that is thinking about discrete groups. Mm -hmm. If we think about the population from which we're sampling our subjects, we often think about a homogeneous population. So there's some infinite pool of individuals. We're randomly drawing them from that. What I want to know is, are there individual differences in developmental trajectories across a continuum, so some continuous distribution, but on average, where do people start? Where do people go on substance use trajectories? And then can we model those in some way? So looking at parental alcoholism as a predictor, looking at biological sex as a predictor. Maybe we have some time varying covariates that we want to know is is in a given week if you were elevated in depressive symptomatology, were you more likely to drink than not? I mean, there are a thousand and things we can do with that, but all of them are predicated on individuals moving systematically across a smooth number line. So it's sometimes it's differences in magnitude. They're not differences in what we might think about as kind. Do the trajectories fundamentally differ as a function of population heterogeneity, mm-hmm. where there's not a single pooled sample from which we draw our subjects, but it's segmented, mm-hmm. right? And so what we talked about in the invariance episode is we could segment the population based on things that we observed. So there are males and females, treatment and control, maybe two racial groups. And we say, not only do you differ in just amount, but maybe there's some qualitative difference in how these processes unfold if you have a biological alcoholic parent or if you do not. People are very comfortable in working with those kinds of multiple group models. Where the mixtures becomes really interesting, and I am fascinated by this, there is population segmentation, there is group heterogeneity, but we didn't observe the measure on which the person is segmented. So in a multiple group analysis, we know the boys and the girls, and we know the treatment and the control. But you can think about mixture modeling as a missing data problem. Mm -hmm. It's exactly the same thing that we talked about in invariance, but we did not observe the variable that allows us to segment our sample. So we need to infer it probabilistically from the data itself. Tiny
0: little detail. We're missing the grouping variable.
1: And to poke in the other eye, we actually don't know how many groups there are. Mm -hmm. So we don't know how many groups there are. We don't know who belongs to what group. Mm-hmm. Then the question is, well, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, <laughs> did you enjoy the play? Yeah, and it, it
0: it gets worse. As you said, you don't know how many are in each group. You don't even know if there are these groups, right? So are there groups? If there are groups, how many of them are there? Given how many there are, what proportions are in these different groups? When I teach this, To lead up to some of the very cool things that you're talking about, I like to think about the example that I consider the formal origins of mixture modeling, going back to Pearson. It's a really cool thing, and if you think it's 1890s or whenever he was working on this, I don't actually remember the exact time, but that feels about right. You know, he's looking at this distribution, this handmade distribution. He noticed that there was an apparent bimodality to it. And the question at hand, I think, was whether or not the data he had on certain measurements of these crabs, whether or not it was representative of multiple species. And given his eyeball in the data, it looked like maybe there might be two species represented in the data that he had. But what he did by longhand was figure out how to try to estimate the optimum mixture of these two populations that he now suspected might exist. So I I think without formal assessment of fit, because maximum likelihood wasn't going to be born for a a while longer, um, he tried to estimate what the moments of these different distributions would be, mean, variance, and whether or not these data were consistent with the existence of multiple populations. Very, very cool thing to do by hand, For me, that's the birth of this whole thing, that he missing whether or not there were these different populations, and he had to try to infer it. And this will get us into the tricky area of is mixture modeling an exploratory
1: technique
0: or is mixture modeling a more confirmatory technique? I think that's going to have to be a theme of some things that we poke at in a little bit.
1: One of my favorite writers of all time is Paul Meal. Meal has a very famous line. It's something like, there are gophers and there are chipmunks, but there are no Mm -hmm. (laughs) gophmunks. Pearson was, I think, the one to formalize it in a way that we're going to talk about, but I think it goes back millennia, in trying to say they're continua in the world, but there are clusters within that that may I like be that. meaningful.
0: The theme that I come up with for mixtures it falls into the "it depends" world, um, which we've mentioned a number of times, and. If we are, and this is almost language that you used previously, if we're talking about uh, assessing a treatment effect, and we say, is, what is the treatment effect for people? And if the answer is, it depends, as you said before, that means we have an interaction. But if the answer is, it depends, and we don't know on what then it starts to drift into the mixture world. Imagine and it's the case that you wanted to assess whether or not a treatment is effective, but maybe it's only effective for some people, but you don't know ahead of time for whom it's effective. Then you might suspect that there is a mixture. So you can imagine a mixture overlay to a T-test. If you were doing something simple like correlation and you want to correlate a couple of variables and, and someone says the correlation is point five. And if you ask the question, is it 0.5 for everybody? And if if you say to yourself, uh, it might not be. In fact, we suspect that there's some people for whom the relation is weaker and some people for whom the relation is, is stronger. And you start using it depends language or moderation language or interaction language, but we don't know what that's upon, then you start drifting into the mixture world. And you can take just about any type of analysis you want. You can take logistic regression. Do you think that equation works for everybody? You can take factor analysis. Do you think those loadings work for everybody? You can take item response theory. Do you think the item characteristics, um, the difficulties, the discrimination parameters are the same for everybody? And this takes us into the vast world of mixtures where there's so much potential, including the things that you mentioned, which I am particularly enamored of, cautiously enamored of, um, that have to do with whether or not there are these latent groups with different trajectories over time so the the potential the landscape for these things called mixtures is vast and there's a tremendous potential And it is a world that I tread into with caution.
1: It pretty quickly moves into a philosophy of science issue Mm -hmm. for me. To me, I see it as a balance between deductive and inductive inference. I think more often than not, we view ourselves as a deductive science. Mm -hmm. So we have some broader theory. We derive some hypotheses that make predictions and we conduct an experiment and then we go from the broad to the specific mm-hmm. and then inductive works the other way. And so you make some observation and you try to generalize that and you develop some theory based on that. And I always roll my eyes a little bit when people start throwing things at each other of whether we're a deductive or an inductive science, then the answer is mm-hmm. Yes. Of course, it's a circular, hypothetico-inductive-deductive cycle of science. But my point is, I mean, it's so rare I have one, I'd like to highlight it. The point I'm is... Pausing. Okay, I'm ready, go. We can take a deductive approach, and I think a really wonderful example is Temmie Moffat wrote what I think is one of the best papers I've ever read in the Psychological Sciences, 1993 Psych Review, and she lays out this absolutely amazing theory that differentiates what she calls adolescent limited and life course persistent antisocial behavior. And she lays out all of these theoretically derived hypotheses and predictions. And her main point is in adolescence, these two types of individuals are intermixed. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very hard to extract. But... As they move into young adulthood and then adulthood, they begin to distinguish themselves. And so adolescent limited tend to be governed more by factors of peer pressure and experimentation and things like that. But they get a job, they get married, they have kids, and they kind of work that out of the system. And so I don't know if in the last couple of weeks you've used a pillow under the blanket to get out so that your wife doesn't find that you've gone out. Okay, bad example. But for this other subset of life course persistent, they don't transition into those more normative roles and maintain a high level of offending. And I really think it's absolutely a remarkable paper, 93 psych review. Very quick side story. I am very fortunate to know Temi Moffat professionally and we've interacted for a lot of years. Her published name is Terry. Mm -hmm. T-E-R-R-I-E, but she goes by Temi. And I was lecturing in class once, and this came up. And just because that's how I know her, I was saying, so Temi wrote this, and Temi wrote that. One of my favorite comments in a class review that I got was from that class. And the person said, I was deeply disappointed at Dr. Curran's need to name drop in class, I would have thought that he was at a professional point in his career where he didn't need to do that. And what was even further embarrassing for him is he kept referring to her as Temmie when her name is Terry. I was going to correct him, but he was 20 Temmys deep. And I did not want to embarrass him in front of the class. And so when I got this I laughed out loud, took a screenshot and sent it to Tim mm-hmm. and I said if you ever leave academia and form a band, you could be 20 Timmy's deep <laughs> opening for
0: Two Story Outhouse at Cat's Cradle. Uh- <laughs>
1: so that's a deductive we believe these groups to exist. Mm-hmm based on very strong theory, based on very strong past work. And I think one of the remarkable things she did in that paper was to say, this particular hypothesis hasn't been tested yet, and if this does not bear out with empirical data, this aspect of my theory is not correct. Mm-hmm. If anybody's listening and wants to read the gold standard for how we should do our science, go read this paper. But that's a deductively motivated. We believe these two exist, and we're going to look at the data to see. I think where this is far more common in the use of these mixtures in practice is inductively. Mm -hmm. For better or worse, inductively. Well, and maybe for worse or for worse. We don't know. We don't know what's out there. I'm going to let the data speak to Mm -hmm. me. And I think 10 or 20 years of simulations and empirical work and some very thoughtful theoretical work has said that's where the endeavor gets particularly dangerous. Pearson was able to do what he was able to do because the distribution of crab measures was non-normal, and he was able to approximate that with a combination of normal distributions. Well, pretty much everything we study does not follow a multivariate normal distribution. Then that's where the horses escape from the barn, and we've got to start being very, very careful in what we do. Oh my gosh,
0: yes, right. So... The as I, as I will say in my class, a hunchback is well approximated by two <laughs> – can I say that? Two normally distributed children? Wait, two.
1: <laughs> I can't help but think you're going to okay. end up in your chair's office again. Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, uh, 20 hunchbacks deep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, but that's I mean, that there's the rub right there, at least at least when we're talking about certain types of distributions that you have to know truth in order to enter this endeavor and you're entering it into an inductive exploratory kind of way. And I mean, honestly, who the heck isn't going to find something when they just go in there and start poking around? And it rests on a whole bunch of assumptions that are uncheckable.
1: How I got introduced to all of this was in my work with Dan Bauer. Dan and I go way back. He did a postdoc with Ken Bolin and with myself, and it was on mixtures. Mm -hmm. There's a general rule in my lab that if I ever offered a bet that you should take it, because I am always wrong. (laughs) But the caveat is it doesn't matter because I never pay up. Dave Kenny is one of my favorite people in the whole world. He's up at UConn, one of the most important quantitative methodologists and social psychologists who has worked in the last 30 years. I owe him like three cases of beer (laughs) because in fairness to me, I think he took advantage of me. I was at Duke for three years. I moved to UNC. I am a lost cause. I still don't care about basketball. (sighs) I don't watch basketball. Basketball bores me. It's like, wow, look, he... Threw the ball to the other guy who threw it right back. I couldn't have seen that. Wow. (laughs) Tackle him. I keep screaming. Why don't you tackle him? And this is pretty odd because I say basketball bores me and I can watch a three-hour baseball game on television. (laughs) I think Dave took advantage of me. But when I moved to UNC, uh, we were emailing and UNC Women's Basketball was playing UConn. And he wanted to know if I wanted to place a friendly bet. In my ignorance of basketball, I said, absolutely, we're going to crush you. And I didn't realize UConn women hadn't lost a game (laughs) since, like, Socrates. That's right. (laughs) Showing also my flat learning curve as I place multiple bets with him. Dave, I apologize. The beer's in the mail. I I will get that (laughs) as soon as I can. But Dan came into my office, and Dan had really immersed himself into the technical literature on mixture modeling. And he said, you know what I think I've figured out? It's very clear that extracting multiple classes, it's a necessary condition that the marginal distribution be non-normal. So you have to have a non-normal distribution in order to extract classes. He said, I think it's sufficient. I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well... I think that if you have a single group and it's normally distributed and you contaminate that distribution a little bit and make it non normal, I think that's sufficient to extract multiple classes. Now, being the supportive and empowering advisor that I am, I said, No, it's not. <laughs> and he said, It is. <laughs> and I said, I bet you a beer. And I said, Okay. And he left. The next day he came back, he had written a little simulation. He had generated data from a single group. He had tilted it a hair to the right, made it a little bit skewed. Mm -hmm. And he extracted two classes 100% of the Mm -hmm. time. And I said, we should go out for that beer tonight because I owe you one. (laughs) That was in 2002. A whole body of work stemmed from that. He wrote a paper in 2003. I was second author on it, Bauer and Curran. I told him at the time I really needed to be fifth author, but there were only two of us. (laughs) It really (laughs) needed to be Bauer, blank, 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 and Curran. That was all Dan's Uh work. But he really immersed himself in that and wrote several very important papers. But what it showed is what you were alluding to just a moment ago. If you were to generate data, and I use this loosely, generate, meaning either through simulation, but also a population-generating model in a substantive topic that we're studying. If you were to generate data from a model in which there is a single group, unambiguously a single group, all you have to do is look at it sideways and you can extract multiple groups. So if it's a little bit non-normal, if there's a model mis-specification, if there's a non-linearity, if you have an incorrect equality constraint, if it's the third Tuesday of the month, (laughs) Right, is these are highly sensitive. So, what we fall into is this really interesting situation where we are intrigued by mixtures, we believe mixtures may exist theoretically that we believe it's a simplification of very complicated data processes. And one of our motivating goals as quantitative methodology is to take a larger amount of information and distill it down to a smaller amount of information so that we can understand it. Yet there are alternative hypotheses that are completely independent of the true existence of groups. That would lead us to believe that there are groups when there Absolutely. are not. So there are a couple
0: of things that this reminds me of. First of all, you and we, broadly speaking, operate in this world where the normal curve wins, right? And everything that you are saying and the things that you and Dan are talking about is that a non-normal distribution can be approximated by a, a finite sum of, of normals. And so you're going to get classes. As you say, you look at it sideways and you're going to get some classes that come out. You are going to get some classes of things that are normally distributed. So if someone had an a priori theory that there's a hunchback under there, that there's a non-normal distribution under there, then they might go at it and find one class every time. But people don't tend to do that. Right? People tend to go in and say, oh, non-normal. Well, that's because there are these multiple normals operating. And the area where we tend to be is to try to imagine everything as this finite sum of normals, whether they're univariate or multivariate, and we get trapped. We have no, sh- no choice but to find some mixtures there. Is that a fair statement?
1: Absolutely. And again, that's where I get jammed up in the deductive aspect mm-hmm. of it. Say we've collected no data yet, and we deduce from theory that we make some theoretically derived research predictions about we believe there to be multiple classes are going to exist. Well, in some approaches to mixture models, you have to extract multiple classes. So if you set within class variability to zero, which is one common specification, by definition, you have to extract... In others, where you allow within class variability, it's extraordinarily likely that you're going to extract multiple classes. Mm -hmm. I would say rarely, if ever, with real data, would you do all the model testing comparisons that we have and conclude there's a single class. I think that you just take it as a given that you're going to extract two or three or four classes because of everything that we were just talking about. Non-normality, non-linearity, minor misspecification. For me, I almost never get out of the starting gate from a hypothesis testing standpoint because if you hypothesize classes a priori, but before you ever collect a datum, you know that you're going to extract classes, then what are the implications for the hypothesis testing procedure? There's a a circularity is, you know you're going to extract classes before you ever gather your sample of data. So what are the implications then of hypothesizing that there are multiple classes? It's an inevitability.
0: We're in this weird place that that bounces back and forth between the deductive and the inductive. And I, I find myself having these kinds of conversations with people all the time. When they say, I am going to do a mixture model. I said, okay, what are your hypotheses? I think there might be some classes in there. And I say, no, 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 no. What are your hypotheses? What are the different classes that you think there are? And then people really start to get vague, and they're not really hypothesizing anything a priori. They're just sort of wishing and hoping that there's going to be something that's in there. And I say, well, you'll probably probably find something because you don't really have some hypothesis. If you go in, and this, this applies to so many things of what we do, If you go in and you test a formal hypothesis, you say, I think there are three classes, and I think this is what the structure is of those three classes, and I'm going to specify that particular structure of those three classes. I'm going to force that on the data then I can do a formal test of whether or not that theory holds relative to some other theory, some other theory that might say, for example, there's one class. But people don't tend to enter into that. They enter into it with some vague hypothesis, if anything, and then they, they let the data be their guide, let the data talk to them in the end. It's like, well, yeah, you're going to find something um, because you're looking for something, I'm afraid.
1: A lot of people have made very important contributions to this literature, so Bengt Mutain was one of the leaders in this and wrote some really wonderful papers on this. Dan Nagin was a a leading contributor to this and equally wrote some wonderful papers. He has a great book on mixtures and where he balances the analytics, but also with what are we trying to achieve in that. Dan Bauer, both on his own and with colleagues, has made multiple contributions. I would recommend, if you haven't seen this already, is he has a really wonderful paper in 2007 in multivariate behavioral research. It's really one of my favorite papers that he's written. I mean, it's technically rigorous, but it's written in this wonderfully colloquial style. It's all first person. And he talks about his own journey through mixture models, where how excited he was when he first learned about it, his PhDs in developmental, and about how this maps onto a lot of developmental constructs and Piaget and stages and all of these And then it's like this coming of age story almost as he really delved into the analytics and then he made some significant contributions to that. And so I recommend uh, looking at this 2007 piece that describes a lot of what you just say is there's an inevitability. So then what have we learned? Mm And maybe we'll get to this in a little bit. We really could do an eight-hour episode on this, right? Is Dan teaches a 16-week doctoral-level course in mixture modeling, and we're trying to talk about it in an hour, and so we're massively glossing over things. But one thing to distinguish is a lot of my concerns center around what are sometimes called direct applications of mixture models. And what that is, is there's some truth as God sees it and we have to go discover it. Mm-hmm. So what are the three types of offending youth? What are the four treatment responder, non-responder classes that exist? In a lot of simulations, we will do a future episode on computer simulations, but it's easy to do bad simulations. It's hard to do good simulations. A lot of these are what Bob Kudek calls Easter egg hunting, Mm -hmm. which is you make three classes, you dump them together, and then you see if you can go find them. Almost all of my concerns about mixture modeling relate to these direct applications that I have found the three types of adolescent substance users. First, there's all the empirical analytic problems that we're talking now, and we'll talk more in a moment. But second, I find that an affront to theoretical models of developmental psychopathology that all you need is Do you belong to class one, two, or three? And we know everything there is to know about you, that there are just these three types. Those are the direct applications. But then what way back in the 80s, a a tittering tin and some colleagues wrote about, and then Dan expands on in multiple papers, but also in this 2007 piece, are what are the indirect applications? And what that is, is we're not after the three types of whatever. What it is, is to say... Holy crap! We are working in an incredibly complicated multivariate space where there are nonlinearities, there are misspecifications, there's wicked non-normalities that can't be captured by any kind of known probability distribution function. And so, what we're going to do is we're going to extract multiple classes to try to approximate it. Dan Nagin has some really nice wording where he talks about points of support, where it's like a tent pole where we have no freaking idea what this complex multivariate topology is, but we can put a 10th stake here, and we can put a 10th stake here, and we can put a 10th stake there. And we don't believe these points of support to be meaningful in and of themselves. They are not the treatment responders. What they are is a point of support in this particular complex distribution that we're in. And we can use that to some selfish end. Dan has a number of really nice papers where you can extract multiple classes to approximate complex nonlinear relations. Mm -hmm. And I think there's great promise in those. But the problem is is we're lashed to the sail mast as we're going through the sirens. And that point of support looks an awful lot like treatment Mm non-responders. And we can't help ourselves but to reify those in a way that is not helpful to the furthering of science. You might
0: appreciate this. For many years, I had a picture up on uh, my office door that showed the kid from The Sixth Sense. Instead of the caption being, I see dead people underneath, it said, I see mixtures. And that's the way I felt about so many people. You know, if am I going to see classes you are. Why? Because you want to. And I am all on board with what you say for approximating complex things using mixtures as ways to try to capture a distributional shape. But it is so hard for people to sail on through those sirens and not start making those tent poles be something meaningful. They just want to see the mixture in there. That's really troublesome.
1: I do too. Right? This is not a holier <laughs> than now thing. I work with colleagues and we have data spanning twenty years, and they're alcoholic parents and non-alcoholic parents and antisocial personality disorder and major affective disorder. We have these complex mediating mechanisms and shifts and prediction and, and moving in and out of abuse and dependence diagnosis. And we've talked on prior episodes where sometimes you're just overwhelmed with the complexity of things. Mm -hmm. And to say that there are three kinds of children of alcoholics... That's a drink that's sitting in front of you that, holy cow, you want to take a slug out of that even though you know you shouldn't. Mm -hmm. I know I send mixed messages because it's kind of funny is my work with Dan, and again, Dan did all the heavy lifting on that. Our collaborative work on that was mostly him taking me out to lunch and describing to me what he had done that week. Mm -hmm. And so in that (laughs) sense, it was highly collaborative. What we had done that week. but we did, so in Bauer and (laughs) Curran... (laughs) <laughs> right? those were what 2003 2004 15 years ago people will still come up to me at a conference and say well i know you hate mixtures right it's not true i'm just cautious right mm-hmm. is i understand the motivation i believe they exist right, right. i believe that there are subtypes of adolescence that are more similar to one another than they are to others. I don't view those as Venn diagrams that don't overlap. I don't think there's group one and there's group two, but I think there are similarities. I think it's consistent with our science. I think it's consistent with psychology. Mary Ainsworth, she did... This amazing work with John Bowlby back in the 70s. But she worked in Uganda working with mothers and infants. And she just noticed in her observations that there were differences in how infants and mothers interacted with one another. So this is true induction, right? She observed these mother-infant interactions. And over time, she saw that they kind of clustered into three groups and there were kind of securely attached and there were insecurely attached and there were... Oh boy, I'm forgetting now what the the three are, but the the distant one where they were unattached. Uh, This is embarrassing. I should know what that is. (laughs) She even wrote in the preface of one of her books... That she observed these and she is going to call these groups A, B, and C. And she's not going to name them because she wants future work to be done to better understand them. Mm-hmm. Well, hell and high water passed and they're still A, B, and C. A, B, and, C. Uh-huh. <laughs> and later it was extended to D oh. for a disorganized attachment. But just my point is, is I am extraordinarily sympathetic To these types and that there is a difference of not only of magnitude, but of kind. But the problem goes back to what is raised on several episodes that we've had in the past, which is going to the how do you know, right? Mm -hmm. Does this move us further along than we were before? And if we think about it from an alternative hypothesis standpoint, the reason that we unambiguously extract three classes from our data is because three classes exist. That's a hypothesis. There are multiple alternative hypotheses that actually may be more likely Mm -hmm. than the fact that you discovered the three types of adolescence but it may be nothing more than you're approximating a complex non-normal distribution with a simpler sum of component distributions mm-hmm. so you can approximate the hunchback with two <laughs> normally distributed boys <laughs> which is now going to get me reported to my chair's office. Right.
0: Welcome. Can I give you an example of a mixture situation that I was faced with that I feel pretty good about? Please. I was working with a team a number of years ago that had developmental data for kids, and one of the key measures that was... An outcome in some analyses, uh, a predictor in other analyses, was the circumference of children's heads at birth, um, which apparently is a very important developmental measure.
1: It's also important to the mom. Okay. <laughs> Epidural. Epidural. <laughs> So
0: I looked at the distribution of the data that I had for these children's head circumferences, and it was bimodal, not a little bimodal, like, huh, head circumferences are not normally distributed. It was so bimodal as to believe that I had a distribution of children and a distribution of chihuahuas in the same data set because the circumferences were completely impossible to be human head circumferences. And I'm looking at this. There's not even a monk that you could find in there, right? There are gophers way over there, chipmunks way over there. And I'm staring at it. I'm staring at it. I'm staring at it. And I ask how the data, I I go back to the original research team via someone else. And I said, how were these data gathered? Well, at birth, the uh, person takes a uh, flexible measure, wraps it around the head and writes it down. I go, okay. All right. By the way, that flexible measure, does it have two sides to it? Well, we can ask. So wait, ask this question. Are there inches on one side and centimeters on the other? And sure enough they ask yes. Said, is it possible that some of the people who were measuring used the inch side and some of the people who use the centimeter side? Well, we can't verify that because the original team is unavailable and you know, we can't really imagine that happening. Well, I'll be darned if you look at the means for these two distributions. They're about two point five four a multipl right a multiplier of two point five four apart about <laughs> about approximately two point five four zero <laughs> um, so what what we did is in all of the analyses that, especially that might have used uh, head circumference as a predictor. I mean, they would have been basically useless in in that particular form. But when we wanted to use, for example, children's head circumference as a predictor of some particular outcome, and just imagine a simple regression, the data were so separated, but we didn't just fit a two-class model. We fit a two-class model where every parameter was constrained to be a function of that 2.54 multiplier difference, and everything just came out beautifully. And I think we exactly solved the problem with a mixture, and it, we didn't happen upon the problem until we were inspecting the data But when we saw that, a hypothesis was quickly formed. And we didn't, like I said, we didn't just go in and say, oh, let's try two classes. Um, We went in with a very hard theory once we figured out what we thought had happened. And things came out so clean. All the relations once constrained to this particular multiplier were beautiful across the classes. So I feel pretty good about that as a mixture. It's an unusual situation, but what do you think?
1: It is an unusual situation. It makes me think of, this is just going on memory and I may have the details wrong, but remember the Mars rover that crashed to the surface of Mars? And so they Mm -hmm. sent it like whatever... Hundred thousands of miles, and it got like 10 feet off the surface and then uh-huh. crashed and blew up. Oops. And it turned out that one team was working in feet and one in <laughs> meters. And so they sent it out of the atmosphere. It went to Mars. Imagine the math. I have uh-huh. a cousin who works for NASA, uh-huh. and we had lunch together just a, a month or two ago. And he computed the trajectory to put a satellite around Mercury. And he asked me what I was working on. <laughs> and I said, Nothin'. nothing. <laughs> Just nothing. I- <laughs> What are you going to do with that? Yeah. Uh But they sent it all the way to Mars. What I tried to picture was standing on the surface of Mars and watching this alien thing come down out of the skies with the rocket firing. And then it hovers, the engine shut off, and it drops to the surface (laughs) and breaks in two. But the example that I used was I was involved in a paper with Lori Chasson. She has a, a remarkable longitudinal study of smoking. Uh, where it starts in adolescence and follows people's in into their 40s. Now it spans something like 30, 35 years, and we use mixture modeling because there are these fascinating types of smokers. There are people who just smoke at parties, and they're early onset who quit, and they're early onset who are lifetime smokers, and they're late onset. There's a really interesting pattern where people who have never smoked before begin smoking in adulthood, and the hypothesis is that it's for weight control. Mm. And there are these distinct types. If given these data over 30 years and said, okay, how would you approach this from a latent curve modeling perspective, I'd spend a long weekend and meet on Monday morning and say, I can't, I have no idea how I would fit a single group growth model to this, I'm done. So we did this mixture modeling where I'd have to go back and look at the paper, but I think we extracted six or seven types that were consistent with theory, these early onset, lifetime smokers, late onset, adolescent limited smokers. But once you extract the number of classes, you can assign people to which class they belong using these posterior probabilities. And there are lots of dangers and problems with that, but it can be done. And then we had what was their modal probability assignment. And then we were able to take those to other analyses to look at, well, what difference is in other kind of psychopathology variables if you were this type of smoker versus that type. Again, when people come up and say, oh, I know you hate mixtures. My first thought is I've, I've used them. I've estimated them. I've been part of this work. To me, it distills down to that alternative hypothesis. What are other reasons that these may have come up? And also the being lashed to the mast of the sirens is don't reify these. Think about these as convenient approximations that help us understand a complex topology that our typical models often can't do.
0: Yeah, I I really like that. And I like that theory is always operating in the background. And in the end you aligned the classes that came out, and maybe some classes came out that didn't align well and and I, it sounds like you sort of let theory rule the day there. And I much prefer that. I'm not against exploratory techniques at all, but you really have to understand what you're getting and, and try not to overthink it on the back end. And people just really, really try hard to reify all of the things that come out of this analysis. It makes me very uneasy.
1: Consistent with that, you can teleport back to the 40s and 50s where there was huge concern about reifying factors that were Mm -hmm. extracted from exploratory factor analysis. And analytically, it's a different thing, not a completely different thing. Dan talks about in some of his work about Gibson's work in the 50s that link factor analysis to latent profile analysis. You know, there's a lot of overlap in what we're doing.
0: To the point of indeterminacy.
1: Exactly. No, that's exactly right. They're numerically Mm -hmm. indistinguishable. We all have the same N by P data matrix. Mm -hmm. And one person's approach is not going to magically allow some insight that is inherently unobtainable from somebody else's approach. I think a remarkable paper was written by Ken Scher. His name is S-H-E-R. Co-authors were Christy Jackson and Doug Steinley, And I think it's 2011 and it's in the Journal of Abnormal Psychology. He's like one of the smartest human beings I've ever met. He's insanely smart. And he approaches this whole topic from the perspective of theory, like how is it moving us forward? And he's one of the world's experts in adolescent and young adult alcohol use. Mixture models are very widely used in substance use literature. And what I love about it is the three of them are wonderful writers. It's very colloquial. I don't have the exact title, but it has Cat's Cradle in it. They did a review of lots of adolescent substance use, young adult substance use, where mixture models were used and across all almost all of them were exactly the same shape trajectories extracted.
0: Completely
1: independent studies, completely independent samples. There's a low use, a high use, increasers, and decreasers. He likens it to the cat's cradle of the little yarn game that you would play as a kid, and you would do all the things, and and you can make this pattern that's called a cat's cradle. So he highlighted that. And then he turned to his own data, which is one of the best data sets that exist in this topic, and they just messed around with it. So what if you used all the time periods you had? What if you lopped off the eighth time period, the seventh time period, the sixth time period, the fifth time period? What if you use even number of time periods? What if you used odd numbers? Every single one resulted (laughs) in a cat's cradle. And then he has a really nice, thoughtful discussion of, given this... Is this moving us forward as a science? It raises a lot of concerns.
0: Oh my gosh, yes.
1: A lot of places
0: that we did not dial into into this conversation about mixtures that we could have, we could have talked about, but I think maybe wisely didn't talk into the challenges just with model selection, you know, how to decide on the number of classes. Mm. I think that's a a messy thing.
1: That's a whole nother episode of how do Mm -hmm. you go about doing it? Because yeah. these things are a freaking house of cards, yes. right? Is you need, you have to identify the number of classes to extract. And there are parallels to EFA, all these early fighting words about method of extraction and communality and or rotation and all of that. And, you know, eventually the field figured out all of those are superfluous if you extracted the wrong number of factors, mm-hmm. right? Is it's like rearranging the furniture on the deck of the <laughs> Titanic is. You know, arguing about rotation when you have the wrong number of factors. But if you want to stay awake at night in fear, solutions are entirely dependent upon uh, start values. And Mm -hmm. common ways of approaching this will estimate 2,000 start values, estimate 2,000 models, and pick the modal likelihood from a distribution and it gets into local minima versus global minima. Dan talks really nicely about that. Mm -hmm. But also where you put equality constraints. More often than not, you have to impose equality constraints in order to get model convergence. But how you go about doing that can drastically influence the solution you get. There's an expression I use and you may or may not
0: like it it's mixture models fall into this group of techniques that I refer to as albino gorillas. And this may or may not make any sense to you. When I was growing up, the zoo in Barcelona, Spain had this albino gorilla. I think the name was snowflake. Um, but snowflake was this incredible creature. Snowflake was really the the symbol of not just the zoo in Barcelona, but, but like Barcelona, it was an iconic figure of it. Imagine being there early in the morning, and you are watching this albino gorilla at dawn. It's perfectly silent. His chest is heaving, and this mist is swirling around. And you're staring at this perfect union of nature's beauty and nature's power and nature's majesty, and you're just feeling this moment. And then he throws a handful of poop at you. (laughs) That, to me, is what mixture models are. They are this beautiful, powerful, majestic, mathematically elegant technique that's there. And when you implement it in practice, you get a lot of poop thrown at you, to the point where sometimes I don't, I don't want to deal with it. Um, there's this wonderful phrase used by Nancy Geller, who was the American Statistical Association president. And I might not get the phrase exactly right, but it comes down to this. The quality of the analyses exceeded the quality of the data, and that to me characterizes so much of what we do. We build these high-powered things that have the potential to do really, really good things, but oftentimes the data really are just overpowered by the machinery, and we get out things that we think are meaningful, that our hearts want to attribute meaning to. But I think so often we really overstep and maybe we let our hearts lead when our, when our heads ought to have prevailed.
1: And that might be a really nice ending point to this discussion. I have concerns about the current state of how these models exist and are used, but I do not despair over where we might go with this. So there's a, a famous line from Pearson where he lays out all of these elegant analytics and examples. And everything, and then he says something about how a question can be raised where we can't distinguish between the mixtures and just a non-normal distribution. And then he has, I'm forgetting the exact wording, but something about however I don't despair that you know something won't be found. I think it's something that we can continue to aspire to. Because in my heart, I believe in some circumstances, in some applications, with some questions that there are meaningful subgroups that exist, and we would benefit as a science from identifying. And so on your side of the street in education, and you think about a classroom of kids there are different types of learners and they may respond differently to different kinds of interventions and to aspire to identify those in some valid and reliable way that maybe we don't believe you're either learn type A or learn type B, right? That reification, but that we can continue to work on gathering higher quality data, Mm -hmm. higher dimensional data, I would like to leave on a positive note, maybe one word of warning, do not reify that extracting multiple classes, one hypothesis is these group exists, but that's one among many hypotheses that need to be treated with equal respect, and that there are useful approximations of classes when approaching complex nonlinearities or non-normal distributions or a variety of other things. And so one is a word of warning. And then the other is, is I think we should continue to aspire to work on these models, how we do use them in practice, how we gather data. I think it goes to your point is we're fitting these models to taking the means of items. I've done this myself. You take the mean of three items and then fit some mixture growth model. How can we approach psychometrics? How can we approach getting holistic contextual measures at the level of the child, the classroom, the school, and the family that -hmm. allows us to do this? And so I do not despair. I think we can continue to move forward. And I find it a very exciting area of study, but we're a long ass way from being Mm -hmm. done.
0: Yes, a lot of poop will be flung um, until that time.
1: I don't know if any podcast... In the history of podcasts, has signed off with, and poop will be flung. (laughs) But how about if we use Uh. that as our exit?
0: All right. And poop will be flung. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you. Hey, Patrick. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking about
1: this. Uh, This was a lot of fun. And uh, we will talk to you next week.
0: All right, everybody. Take care.
1: Bye bye. You've been listening to Quantitude the intellectual equivalent to licking a doorknob. Today's episode is brought to you by our therapist, because rage issues won't just solve themselves, by the multi-level model, an entire field of statistics based on the separation of one variance estimate into two, and by overlapping confidence intervals. Not even Neiman and Pearson could agree on what the hell they indicated. This is most definitely not NPR. I'm Dan Bauer, and I approve this episode. Well, except for that hunchback thing. Totally insensitive, guys.